this is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and today, well, it's that time of year again, the time when the United Nations gets rather quiet and the trains up to the mountain to the World Economic Forum in Davos get rather busy. The WEF is 50 years old this year and, given its self-proclaimed aim of improving the state of the world, it should be the ideal place for the UN's humanitarian agencies to get attention and money, maybe, for their work. Our podcast today will ask how useful it really is for the aid agencies to go to Davos. But first, let's hear a little sound snapshot of some WEF highlights over the years. If you go back 50 years to the time when the forum was conceived, the whole idea was to make the multi-stakeholder concept come alive. Today we're announcing that we'll spend over $10 billion over this next decade on vaccines. The forum managed to convince Mandela and de Klerk to try to reintegrate South Africa post-apartheid. It has been my great privilege to fight a struggle for freedom that the world adopted. What climate change has done, it's monumental around the world. People moving from where their families have lived for centuries because they can no longer afford to feed themselves. Putting people in faraway places and pretending that they don't exist. That is not ethical, it's not sustainable, and it's not conducive for human growth. I'm passionate about serving a group of alternative thinkers who have not only dreamt up great ideas about how the world can be more fair, more inclusive, more just, more sustainable, but are actually proving it's possible. It sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Improving the state of the world. Or is the World Economic Forum, as some cynics suggest, just a corporate schmooze fest? I've heard it described as kind of a speed dating for the rich and powerful in a gorgeous alpine setting. Well, here to discuss that, I've got three amazing guests, all of whom know Davos, and some of whom, anyway, are actually attending the forum this year. First, Kelly T. Clements, Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees, Vinay Saldana, Special Advisor to the Executive Director at UNAIDS, and Heba Ali, Director of the New Humanitarian, UN and WEF Watcher, and herself one of the WEF's network of young global leaders. Um, I'm going to start with you, Kelly. A very basic question, which I'm sure a lot of listeners ask themselves. Why are you going? <laughs> Thanks very much. Glad to be with all of you. Uh, and talk about this important topic. You know, we we actually debate this each year as to whether or not we're going to go again in January to Davos. And I think uh, this year, more than ever, we've decided again, the High Commissioner and myself, um, to go and take advantage of the momentum that we had last month at the Global Refugee Forum. This was probably the first key moment after the uh, Global Compact on Refugees was adopted by the General Assembly, to have this uh, conversation and commitment from uh, multiple parts of society 
to figure out how, how is it we're going to deal with record numbers of refugees in the world today, the lack of political solutions, and a way to come and bring ideas to the table in terms of having refugees not be uh, recipients of humanitarian aid, but actually part of uh, their own destinies, agencies themselves, in terms of being able to provide for themselves, working, sending their kids to school, um, being able to take advantage of the health systems in countries, and really having them included in the conversation. Private sector is an important measure of this, and in fact made an enormous commitment last month, which we'll follow up uh, this week in Davos. In fact, I want to come back to the Global Refugee Forum in a moment. First of all, though, I'm going to turn to you, Vinay, because your executive director is also packing her bags and heading to Davos. What exactly for? Well, first of all, Imogen, thanks for the invitation. It's it's a pleasure to be with you in the studio and with such esteemed colleagues. Uh, and for for our new executive director, Winnie Bianima, who is quite a regular personality in Davos and has been previously wearing her Oxfam hat. Uh, I think she's well known as always speaking truth to power and holding leaders and private sector leaders and government leaders accountable for not only public commitments that are made in press conferences and in big announcements, but let's be honest, there's three parallel Davos fora unfolding this week in Davos. There's the very exclusive club of the some approximately 3,000 participants that are going to be there. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that will be watching various different sessions that are broadcast online. And then there are the private and very discreet meetings that are held. And uh, many of these are unscripted. They're arranged at the last moment through the networking tool TopLink. And so there's a really amazing opportunity to not just network, but actually push very hard publicly and privately that the commitments that are making being made in the public space are actually being kept and moved forward. And I think for our executive director, who's very much focused on not just ending AIDS at some abstract point in the future, but by 2030, the world needs to end the global AIDS epidemic as a public health threat once and for all. And we're not going to get there only by you know, champagne-inspired meetings in the mountains of Switzerland. It's about holding both government leaders and private sector leaders accountable for the commitments that they've made and really picking up the pace of action to, to accelerate things because business as usual certainly won't get us there. Heba, let's bring you in because you're a regular visitor to the World Economic Forum and a really keen UN watcher. This is what you write about for the, for the new humanitarian. And you've looked specifically at this issue, the humanitarian world and the World Economic Forum. How do you see it? I think for a lot of aid agencies, it puts them in something of a, a dilemma. And it's certainly, as Kelly said, a question we ask ourselves too before going. And, and the first time I went to Davos, we had some of our readers tweeting at us saying, oh, so now you've gone from amplifying the voices of the most vulnerable to hanging out with the, the, the most elite. And so you can recognize the, the inherent tension there. Uh, but on one hand, I think aid agencies rightly recognize that the landscape is changing and that um, the UN and governments no longer hold the monopoly on solving the world's problems and that everyone needs to be part of the solution. Um, and similarly, that's part of the reason we rebranded to the new humanitarian to recognize that there were new humanitarians emerging from private sector, from civil society that needed to be part of the conversation. 
On the other hand, there's a quite uh, established critique that if we uh, accept that the elite and the capitalist system that they are built upon is um, at fault for the massive inequality we see in the world today, should we really be turning to them for solutions to the problems that in many people's views they created? And that, um, and that not only uh, by doing so, you, you have two risks. One, that you're playing by their rules. And so the solutions that the private sector is likely to put forward and embrace are ones that maintain that system and don't threaten their power. And secondly, that you are window dressing or somehow, you know, um, credibilizing the whole endeavor. And I think that's those are the difficult questions that certainly I've asked myself and that um, aid agencies have told me that they're asking themselves uh, year on year. And I suppose you see that on balance, they decide um, not all, but some to, to keep going. Kelly, I see you nodding there. I think that's a really important point that, that Hebba made, is that if you go maybe touting for support among the world's big transnationals and multinationals. I mean, some of these, particularly if we look at the disparity in the global economy, things that might cause refugee crisis, the trail sometimes leads to their door. I mean, how comfortable are you with that? You know, this is, I was thinking as you all are talking, these are uh, individuals and parts of companies that we need to be talking to because they have ideas technology, jobs, um, ways of doing things that are different than we would come up with on our own. In fact, we really do need that partnership. And so just from an efficiency point of view, to have one place where these these multinational corporations are represented, to have that conversation, it's actually a very efficient use of time to be able to, in a a space of two to three days, be able to talk to as many as possible. It also is about advocacy, though. One of the big issues that that we heard last month from businesses that were part of the forum is that it is good business to do good. And so what they're doing is not just putting their expertise or their jobs uh, uh, as part of the the solution, but also making this corporately a value statement for themselves. They have uh, customers that will follow them because of their contributions. They will also have more loyal employees. And so we've got some businesses that are involved, certainly uh, in the discussions this week in Davos, that definitely take that corporate view, that it's not enough just to give money or provide expertise, but it also has to come with speaking out. And we've seen this from several of the businesses of the, of the hundred that were present here last month. But we also hear this in Davos. Um, so, yes, there's, of course, an important conversation to be had in some of the more the public events, the more exclusive, as was not, noted earlier in the Congress Center, to have a chance to be talking to governments, but also uh, multinationals in terms of the, the, the way that we provide this kind of support and how we can corporately do things differently. That's important. But it's also the, the, the discussions on the margins where you're really trying to affect change. Is that your experience as well, Vinay? It's not just about getting financial support, but maybe changing attitudes among the world's business leaders. Well, also political, but at the moment we're talking about business business leaders. Well, I mean, I, I haven't been to Davos myself, but I think our executive director, Winnie Bianima, started going in 1996 almost, you know, quite some time ago, uh, just past the halfway mark when the WEF was... In its, in its youth at only 25, now it's reaching 50 this year. Uh, but uh, if, if the headlines are, are accurate that there's at least 100 billionaires 
coming to Davos this week, and many of them represent assets of not just a billion but several billion dollars. So there's at least a hundred billion dollars, if not several hundred billion dollars, that'll be up in the mountains of Cloisters over the next few days. Even if they don't announce publicly new commitments that we're putting a few million dollars or hopefully even hundreds of millions of dollars into this or that new public-private partnership, if they can really get serious about cleaning up their supply chains, about ensuring that they're you know, gender-inclusive, that they're gender-sensitive, that they are sensitive to human rights, that they are carbon-neutral if not carbon-negative, that could have such a profound impact about how the world works and a really fundamental contribution to what the private sector is not only committing to but actually going to advance coming out of Davos that I think the value of that will be much more precious than however much they announce in a new public-private partnership in this press conference or in that headline. And so that's, I, I see it as our job as the UN in Davos to be that moral you know, reality check on both government leaders and the private sector leaders that are there, reminding them it's not just announcements that make their their stock price look good. That's not why we're there. We're there to challenge them and to engage with them to make sure that they're doing their homework and not just in Davos, but in the aftermath of, of Davos to really move things forward in a much faster way than they've been doing until now. But this is my question. As you say, a much faster way. I mean, Heba, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in asking you, I mean, how realistic is this, this wish list that Vinay had? Because, I mean, I was in Davos probably 15 years ago when Tony Blair, you know, made his keynote speech about climate change. Um, right now, we're looking at, you know, uh, bushfires in Australia and the Arctic ice cap melting. Um, we've had the UN Refugee Agency for years putting this issue on the agenda at Davos. We have record numbers of refugees and displaced and probably a, a pretty clear uh direction towards closing borders in many countries rather than opening them. So maybe to, to you, Heba, first, is it more than just this is good for our reputation to say from time to time, like at WEF events, we believe in this? Are companies actually doing anything? It's so complex to adequately answer that question because um, this space is, is becoming quite vast. But I would say there are signs, certainly, that things are changing in terms of some of the um, incentives that Kelly talked about, where now you have many more companies pledging certain corporate social responsibility tactics. You have companies actually doing things, yes. I mean, we've seen um, MasterCard is helping entire villages become more connected to the digital grid, you know. there's a, There are things happening, but is it at the, the scale um, that Davos would justify, given how much money and effort goes into it. And I, I'll quote, um, I wrote a piece specifically about the, this whole dilemma um, in The New Humanitarian, and I quoted uh, Matthew Bishop, who was then with the Rockefeller Foundation, and he said, there still hasn't been anywhere near enough soul-searching or deep-thinking among the Davos crowd about what has gone wrong since the financial crisis of 2008, and why the decades of dominant liberal policy that preceded that crash haven't really delivered real progress. Um, and so when you look at, you know, has the Davos elite done enough for the everyday man? It's hard. It's hard. There are examples and it's moving in a certain direction, but it's hard to say that over the decades we can see a really meaningful impact. Is that only the fault of the private sector? I, I'm not sure that's fair either.
No, well, I mean, obviously there are uh, world leaders attending Davos as well. I don't know, Kelly, maybe you want to have a word with, with Donald Trump about uh, <laughs> refugee and asylum policy. But sticking with the private initiatives, mm -hmm. I was really impressed in December when you had your Global Refugee Forum to hear a senior manager from IKEA saying, we don't just want to give money, we want to change the narrative mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. refugees. And I thought, wow, if big, big companies are really going to do that, to talk to their employees about why it's important to train refugees and allow them to work and welcome them into society. So, I mean, how much of, IKEA, of that is IKEA actually doing now? Oh, they've been doing it for quite some time. And this is one of the partnerships that we don't wait to go to Davos to talk to, because of course they've been with us now for for many years. Um, they pledged another hundred million dollars in uh, December in terms of engagement. Um, now this is with a broad partnership, and it's with very uh, um, specific aims, from energy uh, to employment to education. Um, and I think they have embodied the the value system that the company represents in what they're doing now. Um, that particular individual uh, uh, actually was pledging jobs as well because in their mind, of course, having refugees have jobs in IKEA represents for them the kind of change that they want to see in the world. And including refugees um, helps to do that. Now, it, it's, this is a conversation we're talking about this week, but it, it is an ongoing conversation with many of these companies. Uh, and it's, it's long-term engagement. I know you, it's, uh, uh, and I think for, for us, to not have that voice uh, this week in the mountains would probably be um, a, a greater, um, uh, it would be a greater loss than to be there and to be able to talk about the impact and to talk about what has happened uh, in, certainly in the world today. We have not been going to Davos for years and years. We actually started in 2015 going intensively in terms of being part of that conversation with world leaders, in fact, but also I heard with business. Antonio Guterres was totally against it when he was head he, of the HCR. He did not go for, for the 10 years um, that he was high commissioner, or at least he went a couple of times and then didn't. I think what happened in 2015, though, in terms of the world really waking up uh, to issues of forced displacement and people moving and migrants and refugees and so on, the voice was very much needed. Uh, in those discussions, and that's one of the reasons Filippo Grande found it important to go. And Antonio Guterres, now UN Secretary General, is going mm -hmm. this year. Um, cynics question, but I'm sure some of the listeners will be asking it. Um, what's in it for businesses? We've heard what's in it for you guys. Why are they doing it? Is it just that they've got a lot of woke state uh, shareholders? or? Well, where, where else in the world, in the span of really, we're talking about the next 72 hours, can private sector leaders not only have a chance to try and look good or look better than they're displayed on their corporate homepages, but actually get sensitized to what the real world is demanding. Now, and of course, the, the question of representation is not quite balanced. So you've got, you know, the vast majority, probably 70 or 80 percent of the participants at, in Davos are probably going to be from the private sector notwithstanding how many media they'll be covering the event over the, over the next few days. But the activists that are there, the UN leaders that are there, are going to be seizing every and all opportunities to try and push the private sector further. Even the WEF is trying to stay ahead of the curve. You talked about changing the narrative. I mean, I was quite pleasantly surprised to see on their homepage this morning, you know, promoting the World Economic Forum 
six world-class speakers, and out of those six speakers, five of them are women. Right? So Christiane Lagarde, you know, head of, relatively new head of the European Central Bank, Winnie Bianima, our executive director, uh, a very well-known Indian act actress and activist, Deepika Padukone, Greta Thunberg, and only two heads of state, Angela Merkel and Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump is the only man featured on the WEF website as, as a as a world-class speaker. I can't work out whether he'll feel annoyed or whether he'll really relish it. <laughs> but, but even, I mean, the, the, the way the uh, WEF is trying to set the agenda to not only influence the global debate, but hopefully stay a step ahead of it. I mean, 50 years ago in 1971, when the WEF first convened in Davos, uh, I would have found it, you know, quite hard to believe that they would convene a special dedicated panel session on on free to be LGBTI, right? And they're doing that this week. Is it enough? No, it's not enough. And, you know, similarly inclusive and really substantive agenda setting issues should be the focus of the WEF agenda, not only where is the global economy doing going, but how the global economy can contribute to global health and development. And so that's strengthening, including in this year's agenda, but I think the WEF as the agenda setter, the host of the meeting, could be doing even more in that respect. But so, I'd, I'd argue that the private sector increasingly needs the humanitarian and wider development sector and for a couple of reasons. First of all, we've seen the impact that humanitarian crises are having on economic trends. And more and more, I think that link is, is becoming clear. But secondly, I chaired a, a session at Davos last year um, between Microsoft and the International Committee of the Red Cross looking at artificial intelligence and its use in uh, aid delivery. And it was clear that the private sector had very little idea about the risks involved, the ethical risks, the um, even the logistical constraints of operating in certain environments and so on, and had a lot to learn. And to some extent, we're coming to learn from the humanitarian sector to say, if we're entering into this space, how do we do it right? Um, well, that's I think a good thing. The, and and if you look at kind of who the the who is the governance of today, it is no longer states, right? You've got Google and Facebook that have way more influence and power than most governments. The Gates Foundation, same thing. So, who, you know, if you're the International Committee of the Red Cross and you're used to negotiating both with rebels and with soldiers on either side of the front line because they both have an impact on creating, you know, civilian casualties. In this context, you're going to discuss both with Microsoft and with the governments because they both have an impact in the way the world works and the way people are affected. So you can see the um, the needs kind of on, on both sides. I think the real question for me is to what extent these things are transformational changes and not just window dressing. And to what extent, you know, there's a lot of announcements made. And then it's our job in the media, I think, to hold... Um, everyone involved to account for that. Uh, but a lot of the announcements are around kind of technological quirks and, you know, fun, flashy things. And I, I don't know the, the extent to which um, the fundamental societal shifts that are needed for us to live in a more sustainable way are the kinds of changes that the private sector is trying for. But this this issue, and maybe I can add to Heather's comments, because, you know, we talked about when we've come back to Davos, and it's a substantive reason as well. And in, in fact, it's not... It's not the annual meeting so much as the meetings, the, the, the discussions that happen in, in, uh, in between them. Digital ID is one of those areas which you see the growth from 2016 in the conversation between private sector with governments, with humanitarian development agencies. That has matured substantially. You know, the think pieces that we've done that now have been translated into concrete 
contributions in terms of how we take that forward. We couldn't do that without talking to mobile network operators, talking about regulation or the lack thereof, data protection to get to the comments that you've just made about AI, artificial intelligence. Similarly, to have those conversations about making sure that the privacy of, of the people that we're serving are protected in all of this. So that's the kind of conversation we couldn't do if we didn't have all of us somehow involved in that discussion to be able to then take it forward very concretely. So there's a huge amount going on and some fascinating discussions, conversations happening between the humanitarian community, business and, of course, politicians. Um, I just want to come back to something that Heba said almost at the beginning, that, you know, are we tinkering around the edges of a system which caused a lot of our problems anyway? And how sustainable is it going to be these public-private partnerships, these conversations that you have? Should there be another 2008? Should there be another global financial crisis? Would the whole carefully discussed edifice and these promising new avenues that you're exploring, would they could just come crashing down around you? Vinay, what's your thoughts? Well, we can see in the, in the days and hours to come how quickly can Davos react in real time to the unfolding outbreak of, of the coronavirus in, in China? That will be I mean, interesting. It's happening in real time as the leaders arrive in, and participants arrive in Davos. How quickly can Davos not only maintain the agenda it's been set and agreed to and form formal participants, but also accommodate and reflect seriously with certainly many of the global health leaders in, in Davos and the uh, and many heads of state and many ministers there, can they reflect on this in real time and have discussions on that issue as well? Um, but on the issue of long-term sustainability, perhaps something that is so slippery in the Davos universe is there is not only very limited transparency for what's going on outside of the podcast or you know broadcast sessions that are publicly available, but is there a system for tracking the commitments? I mean, the UN, through the Sustainable Development Goals, a lot of time and effort has been invested with member states on coming up with what are the indicators, what data is going to be provided, how reliable is that data? But there are some very important conversations that are going to be happening in Davos in the next few days. But how, how do we measure this? How do we uh, hold the participants, including from the private sector, accountable for what has been promised or discussed? That, that's a piece of the puzzle that I think we're still missing. Kelly, what do you think? No, I was just thinking about, you know, as we prepare for this week, some of the most interesting conversations never see the camera. You know, it is the it, the political discussions in terms of I'm thinking about last year, for example, and how important some of the discussions we had at that point about Venezuela, the fastest growing uh, refugee and migrant uh, crisis in the in the world. Now, what happened then in terms of the mobilization of resources, the engagement of the international financial institutions and the like? And I think those are the uh, the, the 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 way that we can come together and very quickly. Um, be able to have uh, points that each of us from our respective uh, organizations and governments and businesses can do in terms of being able to find solutions quickly. I, I don't think that there is another choice. If we don't keep engaging, engaging, this is an unusual engagement, but if we don't keep this conversation going, um, that when the world crashes down around us, there's not going to be a way to be able to connect otherwise. I would say for the... Um, the enlightened among those who go to Davos. Uh, certainly, I'm a member of the of the WEF's Global Future Council for the Humanitarian System, and there it's it's co-chaired by 
MasterCard and the International Committee of the Red Cross, so both private sector and, and humanitarian. And they are focusing on um, what they believe is an answer to creating greater resilience and long-term sustainability for people in need. So that when you get the private sector involved in a, in a fragile state and that you're creating jobs and businesses, that that's a much more sustainable way of helping people get back on their feet than receiving aid packages. So I think that the kind of sustainability piece is um, front and center for many, particularly in an age when governments have been cutting back on their aid donations. The needs are, as we've documented, rocket high and um, and the money just can't keep up. So you do need to diversify your funding pots and none of them are, are risk-free. Uh, the market could crash, yes, but your governments could pull funding as they've done and as we saw with the, the US and UNRWA, for example, uh, to pretty dire uh, circumstances. Um, I do think, however, that the the tinkering around the edges question is is um, one that we all need to take a little bit more seriously. If you look at um, some of the radical, um, not radical, I think actually very realistic predictions about how the world is going to change when the climate crisis reaches its climax, uh, you which know, could be very soon, which could be very soon, this the whole structure upon which the system is built is going to is going to collapse, and we need to be thinking much more radically about ways in which we exchange with one another as societies in, that are fair, equitable, sustainable, not only for each other, but for the planet. And I think we're really far from that. And so when you're talking about, yes, pledges and commitments and so on, all of that is taking place within the existing frame and not kind of breaking that frame and starting anew, which is an incredibly difficult job to do, obviously. But that's, I think, the conversation we need to be having. We are, unfortunately, almost at the end. It's gone by very quickly this time. We could probably talk all day about this, but we're almost at the end of our allotted time. What I'd like to do, because Heber was talking there about huge challenges that uh, lie ahead, particularly in terms of climate change and our planet. Um, is Davos more a place where we need to have really, really creative, radical thinking. And if it is, what are the key things the three of you would like to say, oh, yeah, that was discussed at the end of, of this particular Davos? I'll start with you, Bini. Well, I mean, one thing, and this is led by our Secretary General, who will be in Davos this week, uh, he's proclaimed this new decade that goes from you know, the 1st of January 2020 up to the end of, uh, up to 2030 as the decade of action for the Sustainable Development Goals. And so our, our call at UNAIDS, and I think many of the UN would hope that with only 10 years left to achieve the SDGs, the pressure is on Davos to achieve more in the next 10 years than it's achieved in its previous 40 years and actually count it, make it measurable and show what has been achieved, particularly by the private sector that's represented in Davos. Heba? Oh, uh, you could you could say so many things. I think one of the big things that is rarely discussed is uh, conflict prevention and conflict resolution. And if we look at a lot of the challenges that our journalists are reporting about day in and day out, yes, it's wonderful to have commitments to resolve, you know, r respond to the needs that are created by these crises. But 
um, the starting point really is is ensuring that these conflicts don't take place in the first place, and when they do break out, that they're brought to resolution quickly, which is very often not part of the conversation. Um, well, I think we can see that the world has signally failed on this front over the last 10 years. Absolutely. The other thing I would say as a journalist is, is and Vinay talked about it earlier, the question around accountability and transparency, and how do we bring all of these conversations into the public domain a little bit more, and how do we ensure that, that um, there are especially in an age in which uh, media are in their own financial crisis and not necessarily playing that accountability function the way they otherwise might, that that there is some framework for accountability to all of this. Kelly. And for us, it goes back maybe um, to to each of the contributions. It's about inclusion. And including every member of society means uh, that you have a more just, more equitable, certainly... um, and it makes it makes sense for both uh, at the at the global level, but at the local level, to ensure that we are considering um, each member of that society in terms of the ultimate uh, contributions that they make. And I think if we talk about that this week in Davos in a very concerted way, we will have made a difference. Okay, thank you all very much for joining us, Kelly Clements, Heba Ali, Vini Saldana. I think. The one thing we're all united on is that actually Davos is much more than a schmooze fest corporate speed dating in the snow. You can find out more about what's happening in Davos this week on the Swiss Info website. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time. And thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swissinfo. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. (laughs) 